Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and people. I'm your host, Gerhard Lazio, and today we are talking how to optimize socio-technical systems with Ben Ford, founder and CEO of Mission Control. The correct order is people, process, and only then technology. The tools are important, and we talk about specific ones in the second half of this episode. But there are rules and principles that govern how people interact, and we need to start there. The rest tends to fall into place. As for changelog.com, we put Fastly in front of fly.io, and the rest of our setup falls into place. In the last seven days, Fastly.com served 90% of all our traffic from 90 edge locations. Learn more at Fastly.com. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base. Transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. You can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link will be in the show notes again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Welcome back to Ship It. Great to be back again. I uh, can't believe it's been a year since our um, our first round. Do you remember the episodes, the one where when we first recorded the episode number? Of course, yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, it was. Well, this time last year when when we chatted again recently, I couldn't believe it had been a year. But yeah, yeah. check back on my calendar. Sure enough, a year ago, crazy. So that was episode four. If it was five, and this would have been fifty-five, that would have been perfect. However, <laughs> however, by the time you're listening to this. It will be exactly one year, give or take a day, from when the previous one came out. That was episode four, UDA for Operational Excellence. What is new with you? Well, still definitely going around that OODA loop. So since since we chatted, yeah, I've been doing a lot more kind of research and exploration of the OODA loop. Was mm. very privileged to be part of a conversation of a five series conversation uh, which was streamed on YouTube with some OODA experts, and we had some yeah really really interesting kind of discoveries or not really discoveries but sort of insights into into OODA and things like that and um, over the last couple of years I've been trying to figure out how to build better OODA loops for businesses through technology okay and I'm you know by the time this goes out 
I feel fairly safe to say without touching wood and making a tap in the microphone mm-hmm. that that company will be live and, and we'll be um, we'll be rolling that out. So very exciting. So OODA still works. That's the important one. OODA as a principle works well. Absolutely. I mean, OODA is, I do a sporadic podcast with a friend of mine and one of the things we say on there is OODA is pretty much axiomatic at this point. Whether you call it OODA or whether you call it something else, the thing that's going on there is going on, whether you like it or not, you know, you don't do Uda. Uda, do, Uda does you. <laughs> wow. Okay. Why do you say that? Why do you say that Uda does you? That's a very interesting expression. I haven't heard it before. Yeah. It's because, you know, people always say, you know, there's this kind of move within, within our industry, there's this kind of over-focus on frameworks and we, you know, we're going to use this framework and we're going to do this methodology or we're going to pick your poison there. Mm-hmm. But Uda is not something you do. Uda is something that happens to you because you are an entity moving around within your environment and there's just no, you know, it's a biological imperative that you improve mm-hmm. your capacity for independent action, whether you as a, an individual person or mm-hmm. a business. So UDA is happening whether you like it or not and whether you call it UDA or not because there's, you know, plenty of other things that approximate Boyd's work out there. So mm-hmm. at this point, you know, all of the kind of, yeah, exploration and research I've done, I, I do believe that it's it's just something that's happening and whatever mm. labels we use doesn't really matter because underneath there's that principle of reacting to the environment that literally everybody has to has to participate in. So a lot of great words were mentioned in these few minutes and I'm going to mention another one, which I think goes really well with this. And then you have to tell me what generator do you use to generate your talk names because I think they're spot on. Maybe it's you, <laughs> but you gave a talk, The Paradox of Control, and I really yep. like the title. I really like like just the way you formulated it. So what gave you the idea or how did you come up with that title? I thought it was an excellent one, by the way. So this was a talk that I gave at the NATO Command and Control Center for Excellence last November. And the C2COE is a kind of, kind of um, practitioner body that is aimed at improving military command and control systems. And so I went, and, I, and my background is when I was in the military, when I was in the Royal Marines, I was a signaler. So I was kind of the one of the low-level cogs in the command and control system, if you like. Mm-hmm. So I went and looked at, you know, all of the kind of recent research, breakthroughs, technology approach. And I put that up against what I know of UDA and what I know of, you know, evolution and ecosystems. And what I found was a paradox is that mm. command and control is over-focusing on, on the control part and it's focusing wrongly on the control part because the more you try and control a complex system, the less in control it is, right? You Example, forest fires, right? Mm. With the huge forest fires that are happening in, in the States, there's just quite a strong argument there that one of the reasons that they're so huge and so out of control is because there haven't been controlled burns or that, you know, the, the, they've been trying to control the, not sorry, not that there hasn't been controlled burns, that they've been trying to control the outbreak of these fires for so long that it's built up loads of potential in the system and now they're completely chaotic. Mm-hmm. So I feel like com- command and control, you know, when put into the context of like the military procurement system, mm-hmm. you end up with these big kind of programs of work, millions or billions of pounds or dollars, you know, very technology first, very much kind of designing a system that they expect people to jump through the hoops of. And I experienced this in the military, you know, being given a piece of kit that was an utter piece of rubbish and being expected to use it, having never been, apparently no one at our level ever been consulted about the development of it. 
Can you tell us what was that piece of kit? So back when I was in the Marines, and this is going to make me sound extremely old, but it just goes to show how out of date the military experience system is. Experience. Yeah, okay, let's go with that. That's fine. I'll take it. <laughs> we were still using analog radios, mm-hmm. believe it or not, around about the okay. 20 years ago. Despite the fact that, you know, mobile phone networks were a thing, satellite communications were a thing, you know, mm-hmm. 3G was a thing, like digital comms was a thing, but we were still using these god-awful things that, you know, god-awful radios that were developed in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Crazy. <laughs> Reliable, maybe? Was that the reason? No. No? I'll tell you a story in a second about probably the reason I left the Marines, actually. But um, <laughs> was it because of the radio? Was it? <laughs> it was. It bloody was. Really? Oh my I'll goodness! Me. Let me just let me just finish this thought, and then and then I'll okay. um, then I'll go back to that. So, so the piece of kit that we were testing was a a way of securely communicating over HF radio. And HF radio, you know, it's like you know a ridiculously low board limit because the the frequencies are very low. You can't physically fit much signal into it and it was just awful like this was in the days where you used to encrypt radio signals by pulling a punched piece of paper through a physical piece of equipment Mm. and you know if you got if you got caught by the enemy the first job you had to do was burn the piece of paper so they couldn't decrypt your signals seriously 20 years ago this is wow okay are you sure it wasn't 50 years ago? Uh, Pat, no, just how experienced are you? It was developed 50 years ago, but not updated <laughs> for 50 years, uh, for 30 years. Okay. So anyway, the, the story of why I ultimately decided to punch out of the Marines and think that I had better things to do with my life. Mm. 2003, just after I'd been teaching myself to code, I was sat in, in Saudi, and this was just before we did the assault on the Al Fort Peninsula as part of the Iraq invasion. And my job was to get all the comms ready. And bearing in mind, you know, these communication systems are radios that you set up back in those days you used to hand tune the antenna length to make it match the frequency of what you were talking and we were trying to get comms with a ship that was maybe 50 kilometers away right wow so there's me and all of my buddies sat in the desert for three days twiddling antennas and moving masts around so they don't interfere with each other and Mm. it was an absolute ball ache Mm -hmm. and then the navy seals rocked up because they were on the assault with us they were doing the practice practice session with us and they rocked up probably you know, a few hours before kickoff time, uh, you know, fairly nonchalant. And this signaler, my my counterpart in, in the SEALs, pulled his truck up, turned it around, reversed it up next to our command post tent, got out of his truck, pressed a button, up went our hydraulic mast, and he picked up his, his handset, and he had comms immediately. So what had taken me three days took him approximately three seconds. Wow. And okay. I already knew that, you know, there was better kit out there. And I already so knew that was it. Was, that was the one with the broke like, you. <laughs> yeah, it was it. Like, the mission doesn't make sense to me. So, that yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm now doing what I'm doing rather than, you know, being oh. a sergeant major in the Marines or whatever. <laughs> so, compared to that, Kubernetes must be child's play, right? But still, you don't do that because complexity, there's like better ways and there's a different type of complexity that you want to spend your time with. So how does this compare to the technological landscape and the infrastructure landscape that we have today? Because I see a lot of similarities, but I'm wondering which ones are you seeing? Well, so that is a very a very astute observation because, you know, the the dynamics that played out of our kit being behind the times, you know, you can see that playing out in reports about Russian kit now, but the dynamic is exactly the same as what's playing out in the technology environment, right? It's, you know, obsolescence and it's an evolutionary struggle of ongoing improvement. And what played out over the course of, you know, can you imagine if you had a piece of technology now that was 50 years old? Like, so we're, we're 20 years in front of yeah, when no. I just had that story. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> no way. So you just cannot stay 
competitive with these kind of long procurement cycles. And for us in technology, that means that the time horizon or the half-life of your your current systems gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So you have to be continually reinventing yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if you launched a tech company five years ago and you be- became successful and you've now got competitors, you know, let's say you launched five years ago and you launched on, I don't know, AWS, you know, maybe you were using Kubernetes at that point, maybe you were using Docker, but probably you're using, you know, virtual machines. Yeah. yeah, maybe you've terraformed it up, maybe. But you've become successful, you've gained a load of internal inertia, and now you've got a competitor snapping at your heels. And that competitor's using something like Vercel, using something like Fly.io or um, Railway.app for their infrastructure. I mean, they will be building, it might not be an order of magnitude faster than you, but it will be faster than you. Mm. So exactly the same dynamic of what I just showed, uh, shared about the radios back then is now in effect at probably two, three, 10 times the rate in our daily lives in, in as technology professionals. Okay. So this is something, I had like a recent conversation about this, where we were talking about Terraform and uh, ECS versus something more modern like Hasura or Fly.io. And people keep reverting back to what they know. So there's an element of being comfortable and they say, no, I'll be quicker because what I know will make me quicker. So what would you say in those conversations? What would be the argument that you would use for the new wave of infrastructure and the new way of tech? Yeah, I've I've come across this argument and it, and it it does kind of make sense in certain contexts, I think. You know, government IT is a is a good example in the UK. There's this kind of in in many departments in the government there's this mantra of use boring technology. There's even a website for it. Um I can't even remember what it is, boring tech manifesto or something. And again, this is something that may have made sense 5 years ago, right? If you're 5, I don't know, five 10 years ago, right? If you're 5 or 10 years ago and you had the choice of all the sexy kind of technology or stick with Java, then that might be defensible back then. Mm. But if you had the choice now of choose something that is, you know, a huge CICD pipeline, you know, multiple days to, to get anything out the door, but technology moves on, right? And you can always make that choice of familiarity, giving you that immediate mm. getting off the ground advantage, but you will always, you know, it's always a trade-off and mm. you will always have to be knowingly trading off that there are other teams around that are using technology that's more modern and they might not be even as good as you in you know good if there is some sort of objective measure of mm. goodness within a technology team but they'll be using better tools mm. and okay. so there's no that you know like with anything there's no right answer mm-hmm. but i think if you're a let's say you know a company that's maybe fallen behind the times a bit there is a very strong argument for saying if you're going to make a leap forward make a leap forward right to the cutting edge of you know this evolutionary landscape rather than making an incremental step forward. Okay. I'm wondering how much of this is linked to that, you know, when you create and destroy, create and destroy, some call it disruption. I think you have another way of, uh, of, of phrasing it. But how much of this plays into that? In that, if you're comfortable, and if you say, no, no, let's just do what always worked well, what got you here will not get you there. And you're trying to get there, right? You're not trying to get where you're at. How much of that do you think translates into our technological choices whether it's kubernetes whether it's vms whether it's whatever whatever we choose yeah that's a, a great question i mean there's there's always the pressure to get started as quick as you can right i mean that's you know the whole kind of lean you know lean uh what's it called lean startup all that kind of thing mm-hmm. so you know given 
that you start a journey with the resources at your disposal, there's obviously a strong incentive to begin that journey with what you have right now, right? Prove, mm -hmm. take a small step forward, prove that it works. The issue is that, you know, I was on a, on a, a really great conversation last night, actually, that it's not a turn-based game. People don't wait nicely in line. Your competitors don't wait nicely in line. The market doesn't wait nicely in line. It's not chess where you you take a move, somebody else takes a move. Everyone's moving all the time. So the problem with comfort is that you can become accustomed to being comfortable and you're not ready to be uncomfortable. And the more comfortable you stay for the longer time, the more uncomfortable you're going to be very, very quickly when 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 the situation changes because you're just not used to doing new stuff. And you can yeah. see that in, I mean, government, government services, again, I've mentioned them before, but you know the pressures that society faces as a result of technological change are now butting up against, across all of, all of the world, really, apart from, I don't know, maybe Singapore and some other forward-thinking places, are now butting up against the inability of civil mm -hmm. service, political systems to change. And when you're now looking down the, down the throat of an economic crisis and a climate crisis, I was listening to the radio on the way back from dropping my little girl off to school. And they were saying that, you know, Sizewell C, we're going to get planning permission in two weeks or, or a couple of weeks. And I've worked it, I've worked in the planning inspectorate a little bit. So that's probably, you know, the end two weeks of probably several years of back and forth and utter waste of time. Yeah. And now we're going to, we're going to begin building hopefully in the next few months and we'll have a new power station in 10 years. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. And I think this is so relevant, like, um, and the energy sector is going through some huge change. I mean, we've been talking about renewable energy for like a long, long time. And there are certain events happening around the world which have accelerated this. But is it, I don't want to say too late because it's never too late, but is it maybe five years too late? We could have done this like five years earlier. Like, why do we have to wait? But then there's, I think there's something in us. Like, we are waiting until we can wait no more and then we make the change. Maybe there is a better way. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there clearly is a better way, but the incentives against following that better way are just, you know, heavily canted against doing that. You know, the political systems and, you know, and you know, capitalist systems and incentive yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's an extremely difficult nut to crack. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. They give software teams instant visibility into the quality and the performance of their software. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, would you say Raygun is focused on monitoring or in quotes, observability? How do you draw the line? Is it monitoring or is it observability? Yeah, I tend to find our industry gets super hung up on labels and what their definitions are. You know, you see the constant battle of, you know, is observability really just traces, logs and metrics or is it more? And it's like, well, to me, at the end of the day, I think of it as the objective, which is allow me to fix issues fast and understand how to debug them quickly. And if I can do that, I don't really care if it was from a metric, a log or, or whatnot, you know, just help me solve problems quickly. And so Raygun absolutely provides a level of observability and I would class it as the classical term of monitoring. But say our APM product, uh, you know, most APMs these days are doing great stuff with things like spans and, you know, measure these things. Raygun's APM does method level profiling right down to it, very low overhead, you know, and when people bring that in and they go, hang on, so this integrates with my source control, I can look at the code, I can see down to the lines of how long this is taking to, to execute. 
that's actually a level I find of observability that isn't in a lot of the observability companies' uh, capabilities, right? They have high-level span saying, well, this service took this long. It's like, cool, but how long did the methods inside it take? It? You know, I want to understand more than just the slow SQL statements. I want it to proactively identify code smells, which is, again, another difference that Raygun's APM has. Our vision is to try and have Raygun feel like it's a virtual team member working 24-7 on your side, identifying things and helping give you the context to fix them. To me, that's observability. Well said, JD. All right, head to raygun.com to learn more and start your free 14-day trial. No credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers. Again, raygun.com. With our own infrastructure with Changelog, every year we try to do things differently. Mm -hmm. We try to challenge ourselves and go in a different direction. This year was no different. This year, I mean, who goes from Kubernetes to Paz? I think very few do that. We did it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Jared is so happy about that move. I would have not expected that outcome and others which are coming. It just goes to show that if you try things that you would normally try because it's not that they don't make sense, but you go in a slightly different direction. You're trying to look for the learnings. You're optimizing for the learnings, not necessarily yep. for where is the majority going, where it's safe to go, what has been proven. And, okay, passes have been around, uh, along for a long time, but there are certain elements which are new, such as, for example, WireGuard or IPv6 or mm -hmm. other build packs. And there are other things, technologies like that, which have matured and have been combined in a different way. And I think this goes back to the paradox of control. It's not about control, it's about how things combine. And yeah. we are combining the same elements in a slightly different way. And there may be new elements. It's this combination of things, which to me is fascinating. Can you tell us a bit more about that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, that, that is exactly what I meant about the paradox of control, right? You're, when you do an experiment, if it's a good experiment, you probably don't have a great deal of control over the immediate outcome. Mm -hmm. But doing many, many experiments paradoxically gives you more control over your destiny because you are learning, you're adapting. And that, that ability to learn and adapt is way, way more important to have as a capability than the outcome of a single experiment along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, like the process of evolution, right? There's many, many mutations and, you know, lots of them are unsuccessful for the, the individual. Or, the, or some, in some cases, some bad cases, the, the species. But ultimately, the process of evolution gives you literally everything that you see as you look around outside your window, inside your window, the technology that we're talking on. So again, UDA is always happening. So you either become good at it or you fall behind. There is just mm -hmm. literally no other choice, in my view. Right, yeah, that's a good one. So this makes me think about more specifics and the tools, some of the tools that you, you're mentioning to me that are even new to me. So you're mentioning Metabase the other day, you're mentioning 8n8n.io. Yeah. Again, let's make that clear, n8n.io. Notion, I'm, I think many already know Notion, but I think there's ways of using it and ways of thinking about it that many maybe aren't doing that. So can you tell us a bit more about these types of services why are you attracted to them and what do you, what is like the value proposition there because there's something there for sure yeah 
100%. What do so, you see in, 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 in this mix and in this combination? Yeah, so up until now, we've been talking about you know, developing products, I guess, right? Developing products and services that you use to deliver to your customers, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a, you know, an ever-growing feast of potential technology platforms and affordances that you can use to build products. And the whole, you know, the whole point of being in business is to find a problem for a section of the market and to solve it in a way that you deliver value great, much greater than what you charge. And it costs you to deliver that value much less than it than you than you charge for it. So, you know, all of the product management and all of the kind of technology talk is about that bit, right? And that's Mm -hmm. all kind of external to the organization that delivers that. But the the you know the organization is the foundation, right? So Mm -hmm. I got very jaded, and this is probably how I ended up on this kind of OODA loop and you know research and and whatnot trainers as a on the tools developer, DevOps engineer leader with doing a good job on all the stuff that we've just been talking about, mm-hmm. putting a good team together, building a good platform, and it just not quite landing either because of, you know, poorly aligned priorities or a misunderstanding of the market or increasingly just utter friction in- internal to the company. Yeah. So, you know, as I've been doing all this kind of research on command and control and, and OODA and whatnot, I realized that, you know, we can take a bunch of this you know, great technology that is becoming increasingly more available, and we can use it to build internal systems as well. Because mm-hmm. if you put all of your investment into the externally facing parts of your your technology, and you've got a bunch of, I don't know, interns running around doing Excel to try and figure out what the hell's actually going on, which is increasingly what happens. Because, you know, the, the way I see it is that you've got, you know, different company departments. So a company gets to a certain size and it fractures into different functions. So, you know, you get your head of X, head of Y, marketing, product, whatever, and they go off and they start building their their part of the pie, right? And, and that's the right thing to do because you need a marketing department, you need sales, you need ops, you need customer support. The problem is you get to a certain point where now all of those individual departments are choosing the right tools to support their journey. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they'll, they'll pick, I don't know, a HubSpot or a Amplitude or, you know, whatever, right? There's millions of these different services you can use to build a better department. Mm-hmm. And what I've observed in many, many companies is that that's going really well for the for that department. But when it comes to taking a step back from operations and figuring out strategy, mm-hmm. direction, priorities, and sense-making and, and situational awareness, there's a void in the middle because, you know, that void is filled by, you know, these same expensive people you've hired to build out your function in some cases trying to aggregate data in Excel very often, or there's, you've got a team of, you know, admin folks in the middle of this company who are usually not that well paid and sometimes not very experienced. And they're also trying to, you know, take all this data and, and aggregate it together in order to provide some kind of insight or, you know, run payroll or do any of the number of biologically important things that keeps the company ticking. And I realized a couple of years ago, well, look, you know, why would you use Excel when you can connect up all, all of the, these kind of good frontline services have APIs? Why would you have a human go into the user interface, download a CSV, manually kind of do all that stuff the same time, at the same way, in the same error-prone fashion every month or every week, whatever your reporting cycle is, when there's all these affordances like NAN, like Asura. So I've spent the last couple of years basically building a a stack of these open source tools that you can run yourself 
that you can basically put into the center of your company and turn that into what I'm calling a, a mission control, which is a, you know an idea from the military where you have the right in the middle of any military unit. There's there's always a usually a tent or a room somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's got a big map of the area of operations on the wall, and that's where all the information feeds in. And it's basically the same concept, but for you know a modern tech-enabled business. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you pick those tools? Like, do are they? The same set of tools. I, I don't. I don't think that's the case, right? Because it's very specific to what that company needs, and every company is different, and there are different stages. How do you know what to pick? Well, same as all those other experiments, right? I've tried a bunch of stuff that hasn't worked, <laughs> right? <laughs> so okay. the the observation here is that you know when you've got a company that might have between fifty and hundred SaaS products in use mm-hmm. to support operations. The combinatorial nature of that means that that's going to be different for every company. You know, one company will choose a HubSpot, one company will choose, I don't know, something else. You know, one will be an amplitude, one will be an orbit, whatever. And the company will have a different makeup and a different kind of social structure and they will have evolved differently and they'll have different goals and everything, right? So there is definitely no product that you can just take and plonk into the middle of a company and say, right, here's your business in a box. So this is a much more, again, what I was talking about in that that talk, the paradox of control, instead of trying to build a product and, you know, flog a product, which is the best thing, you know, candidly as a, as a business, a product that I could do that for a huge margin because it's a software as a service thing would be great, but it's not the right thing. You can't have a product that this is something you have to build internally within a business. It's something that all businesses are doing, but they're doing badly with, you know, Excel or, you know, bolted together bits and pieces. So, that combinatorial nature, all the different software in use to support operations means that you've got this kind of factorial shaped problem. When you add a new thing, mm-hmm. if you're integrating everything with everything, you've now got, you know, the number of previous things of links that you have to build. So the observation of of this tool is if you put something in the middle, which is this central nervous system, if you like, the only thing you have to integrate to is that, and you build up this kind of consolidated model of what's going on in, in the world. Mm. And that I think you can you can templatize it. You can you can leverage a stack of technologies that you know I've figured out with trial and error over a bunch of consulting engagements that have mm-hmm. cost, cost quite a lot of other people's money. So I, I know that there's a stack of I don't know five or six different tools that work well together and can build this capability very quickly. And some of the ones you mentioned, Hasura, MetaBase, NAN, Notion, they are all part of that stack. But you mm-hmm. know if you go into a, if I was to go into a company and they already had Asana or they already had uh, Monday.com, then obviously Notion would would drop away and you'd use what was already there. So it's a very, you know, it doesn't have to be me doing this. Like if a business is doing this themselves, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's a landscape that you have to build your foundations into before you start building the internal systems. So as as good as these tools are and as relatively easy it seems to combine them, there must be something more to this for it to be valuable. What I'm thinking, and this is an assumption, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is that it, there are certain principles, certain approaches that are way more valuable than the tools that you choose so that you can swap any which one out. It's almost like our, our nervous system, right? Yeah. Even if parts of it, it's just continuously regenerating parts of it, you know, or like in different stages, but it still functions as a whole. It won't shut down. So yep. there must be some, I know, I don't want to call them rules, but there must be some principles, some 
learnings, some things which are just like truths, like axioms, if you wish, that will always be that way. Things that just happen and you don't do, it's like a result of those things. Can you tell us, I mean, wood, I think is one of them. Are there other things like this, which are this, that basically hold all this together? It's like, yeah, almost like rules of the universe, but like rules of technology, rules of organizations. I don't know what to call them, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we've already touched on Uda. I think Uda is 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 the thing that is kind of like the the box that it, this all fits in because Uda is you know whether you use O O D and A to describe it, there is a process that's happening, mm-hmm. and that process does seem to be very well described by Boyd's work. Now, whether you take his diagram and his words for it doesn't really matter, but that's the the principle of what's going on. Or you call it agile. <laughs> yeah, or CICD whatever like. or I mean, whatever. It's like a representation of that. But oh yeah, yeah I really like you that. Know, obviously, if you call it agile with a big A, you actually also have to be agile, um, <laughs> which doesn't always match up as we know. So one of one of the things, so there are several things that Boyd said that I think are worth picking into here outside of the context of Uda. One, one is that he said, people, ideas, and technology in that order always. And again, that's the big stick that I use to try and beat this paradox of control into submission. Like when you go the other way around, technology, ideas, people, it doesn't tend to work that way. So technology always needs to be in service of people rather than people jumping through hoops of technology. Seems like a simple thing, but you know, you just have to look around the world and look at, you know, customer service experience in many businesses and understand that people have got that wrong the wrong way around. So although I am a technology person, I'm also a person and this stuff has to be in service to the people who are doing the thing. So that's one. That's why I that's why I kind of in that paradox of control talk, I pick out this kind of bottom-up approach of building technology. So instead of, you know, coming up with a top-down five-year vision of a product and then deconstructing all the bits you need to make and doing the waterfall kind of building it, the world of five years in the future that that lands into will be completely different as, you know, as we all know, that's the whole point of Agile. So the approach here is instead you you collect capabilities together and you use those as the situation demands reactively to build something that is loosely aligned with a big direction. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one that's one of Boyd's other, other sayings. The other one is, the thing that he talks about, which really is what drives the OODA loop and drives the dynamic of the OODA loop is that organisms or entities that are separate from their environment have this biological imperative to build their capacity for independent action. Mm-hmm. Now that is quite a long sentence. So capacity for independent action essentially means that you are able to operate in the world without detriment. So, you know, you, you have your own capacity to do your own things and your own moves forward. And the issue that I found that led me to this kind of technology approach was that, you know, you go into many businesses and you start talking about OODA and situational awareness and everything else. And people are like, yeah, great story, bro, but I'm reactive 18 hours a day. And that sounds really nice, but sorry, I don't have time to implement that. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that you get when you start using better tools is you get capacity back. Like if you have, I don't know, an engineer, let's, let's take an example from our world, you know, an engineering manager or several who spend half of Friday afternoon preparing reports, you know, very manual process. They go and download some stuff from Jira and they go and download some stuff from GitHub and they prepare a report that they then feed into the management meeting. That is not value adding at all because what they are, what you have is a human who is being a cog in a machine because they're doing straight through processing of data that is available. So if you instead 
move that into a you know low code tool or a tool that you build yourself or whatever right you move it out of the humans remit into a technology thing that will run you know reliably every time take much less time and give that human back their capacity to be a human to make decisions to take actions to think so you know i became quite frustrated with you know the course that i that i put on and that you were one of my students on i ran out of steam with that because i was like and so what, you know, once I'd done all of that kind of explanation of UDA, situation awareness, mission control, all of that good stuff from the military, it's like, and now how do I tell people how to implement that? And that's what this thing is, it's right. It's a, it's a way to start implementing that to give people back capacity so that they can exert the right type of control over their environment rather than being, you know, humans acting mm -hmm. as cogs in machines. Yeah. So I can definitely see how we are literally working our way backwards we talked about technology, which actually should come last. So forget the tools, forget what you're choosing. Now we are somewhat touching on, did you say ideas or was it ideas, process? Yeah. Ideas, okay. Ideas. So these are the ideas that are behind that technology. And I think now we are coming to the people. So what do people do day to day to start implementing those ideas using the technology that exists today and that most don't know about? So going back to the people, and I think that's where maybe we should have started. That's 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 an interesting observation, even for me. <laughs> let, let, let me say so myself this time. <laughs> so what are the important things when it comes to people, when it comes to building healthy organizations that build healthy products that are just a joy to be part of and an honor to be part of? What needs to happen at a, at a people level? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think there's a there's anything like a single answer to this, but one of the books that I've really, really enjoyed reading and, and a com companies that I've enjoyed following is um, uh, Corporate Rebels. Mm -hmm. There's a rich theme of, you know, obviously there's there's the Western kind of management kind of doctrine, which is very much about building machines, right? Mm -hmm. you, you have a bunch of people, you build into a machine that, that makes money, you put this much money into the machine and you get this much money out. And, yeah. you know, maybe 20 years ago, before the internet came along and, and we came into a much more networked world, that kind of scientific management, I mean, it still has a, has its place. Obviously, when you do a business model, you, you still need to know that it all hangs together and it makes sense. But that's, I think, no longer the predominant paradigm of actually doing day-to-day -day operations and day-to-day -day management. Mm. So what people, I think, need is people have ideas and they make decisions and they take actions. The problem is that those actions and those ideas are, you know, you you only receive information about the effectiveness effectiveness of those as kind of ripples in time. So you do you do something now and you find out how effective it was in the future, and somehow you need a way to close that gap. And you know, again, paradoxically, when you had businesses that were all co-located and there was a team of people in one place who were all doing this human stuff, you would have a kind of almost like a tribal wisdom about what's going on like there would be a sense within within there of what's what's actually happening and i think that's something that broken down especially when people start going remote and async but it doesn't need to be because much of the sensory apparatus that we have as as people in business are now me uh, technology mediated so you know all of your customer data is flowing through a system of one sort it's no longer mm -hmm. joe in sales picking up the phone and talking to people it's actually probably much more algorithmic of this is our customer's behavior when, we, when they use our product or when they see our website. So actually, you know, although we've kind of lost a little bit of that human to human behavior, that actually the richness of 
sensory data available to us is you know vastly improved so the the other kind of aspect of technology here is that you can use technology to make that more accessible and understandable to humans in the way that would have been that kind of tribal you know tribal knowledge beforehand and that's another thing that i think that traditional command and control hierarchical view you know we're in a much more networked world now yeah. so you know you, you need to look at ideas like data mesh and, and and things like that to understand that access to this data needs to be democratized mm-hmm. so technology should be there for people to use like metabase for example is a good idea you mentioned it earlier plenty of other bi tools but with metabase you can have you can give people access to raw data and they can aggregate it and slice it up without knowing sql mm-hmm. and they can share that without you know having to take a screenshot and, and email it to somebody so it's just it is like a nervous system it's building the nervous system of the business such that it is more useful to the brain of the business which is the people right This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool helps teams focus on product development and customer value, not building and maintaining internal tools. It's a low-code platform built specifically for developers. No more UI libraries, no more hacking together data sources, and no more worrying about access controls. Start shipping internal apps that move your business forward in minutes with basically zero uptime, reliability, or maintenance burden on your team. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool, Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as their platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. And by Chronosphere. When it comes to observability, teams need a reliable, scalable, and efficient solution so they can know about issues well before their customers do. They need a solution that helps them move faster than the competition. And companies born in the cloud native era often start with Prometheus for monitoring, which is obviously an amazing piece of software, but they quickly push it to its limits and often outgrow it. They run into issues with siloed data, missing long-term storage, and wasted engineering time firefighting the monitoring system versus delivering their application with confidence. They describe the system as a house of cards, where a single developer's seemingly benign change can overload the whole monitoring system, or they say they're flying blind because they pride themselves on making data-driven decisions, but losing visibility means they lose this competitive edge. Ryan Sokol, VP of Engineering at DoorDash, has this to say about Chronosphere, quote, The visibility and control that Chronosphere's platform gives us to manage our observability data and costs are a game changer, especially with our unprecedented growth, end quote. Chronosphere is the observability platform for clouding of teams operating at scale. Learn more and get a demo at chronosphere.io. Again, chronosphere.io. So now that we are a lot more just distributed, everyone's remote, more remote than they were before, especially in the sector that we operate in, how can we make those people still feel connected and still feel like they belong to the same tribe? Because I think that is very challenging these days. 
it feels like it's you in a room, uh, best case, right? Maybe in, uh, at the kitchen table. How do you make them feel like they belong part of a group that used to be the office and it's no longer the case? Yeah, that's a, a very good question. So there's something that I've been playing with here, actually, that I'm going to try out for the first time live on you. So um, okay. let me know Let me know what you think of this. So another thing that kind of came out of this research into command and control, you know, when, when you're a distributed system is necessarily an asynchronous system, right? There's mm-hmm. no single objective source of truth, right? There's eventual consistency. And I, f- I think that the trap that we fall into, which is kind of maybe a legacy of how businesses used to run, is that we over-focus on coordination, right? So we try mm-hmm. and, you know, a, a distributed system really wants to work in a much more eventually consistent way. So, you, you know, to, to build a distributed system, you use things like CRDTs and operational transform, and you have a, you don't have necessarily an objective point in time truth, mm-hmm. or not, not one that's readily extractable. You can have a historical point in time truth. You can go back an hour when everything's consistent and say, okay, this is what we knew then, but you can't do that right now. Mm-hmm. And I think the mistake that that we make as we get more and more distributed is that we we try and brute force coordination when what we should actually be focusing on is alignment. As long as all that stuff's pushing in the right direction and that direction is clear, it doesn't actually matter if we have an objective truth at any single point in time right now because people are in different time zones and everything else so i think the way you make feel people feel connected in a distributed context is you have a very clear mission values vision you know all of that stuff that people talk about that don't do very well because they're continually focusing on the day-to-day operational side of things yeah so focus on increasing the capacity and the operational side of things by automating what you can so that all of that consistency and whatnot is you know, made part of the machine if you can, mm-hmm. as much to the to the greatest extent possible. Use that capacity that you have to build human to human connections and connect those people with the alignment of the business, what the group is doing. Because ultimately it's that that's what make, makes people feel part of something is being part of something important that you're moving towards. Mm-hmm. Not I missed a meeting and I now I don't know what's going on. Does that make sense? It does very much so. And I know how important something like, for example, the culture is. If you don't get that right, and this just needs to be part of the group, they, they just need to understand what the culture is. They need to be part of it. Like it's it's what you do when, when no one's watching, but it's really what you do day to day. What does your day to day look like? And does your day to day or your ideal day to day match to the rest of your team so that you feel that you belong? And if everyone does the same thing, you start seeing events. You perceive those events and you realize, oh, actually that looks familiar because I'm doing something similar. And that's how you feel that you belong, or at least it's a small part of it. An important one, but a small part. The other one is the clarity. Having the clarity in the group, uh, within the team, what is it that you're doing? And, and this is the hard one, why? Why is it yep. that you do what you do? And do you agree on that? Do you truly agree on that? And I think those things are really hard and they are becoming even more important these days to get right. Yep. Because otherwise you won't feel that you belong. There isn't that office element where you, you know, maybe 50% of the time you do something other than work. Best case, it's actually usually more than that. So you yep. don't have those those high social interactions, those high, those high bandwidth social interactions, which make these other things even more important. So the next thing which I'm thinking is, 
how can you get that clarity? How can you capture the culture? Like, how do you go about those things, which are hard, more important yeah. than ever, and I think there are much better building blocks rather than an office space where you just hang out eight hours a day. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a difficult one. I mean, mm -hmm. to what extent can you even capture culture? Because it's not, you know, it's, a, it's an aggregate quality of a group of people. It's not an objective thing, right? So it's, it's necessarily diffuse and nebulous and very difficult to grasp. So I think mm -hmm. you can make sort of judgments about you can do, I don't know, questionnaires and, and tests on various different dimensions of, of, of culture. But I mean, the other thing is like, to what extent do you need to have a homogeneous culture, right? Diversity obviously is, is very important. So, I mean, the thing with the military is, you know, you have diversity of decision-making, but you have homogeneity of action and, and standard operating procedures. So that homogeneity means that people know their place and know what to do but it also means that the culture is quite rigid right that you know there's a way of doing things in the military if you don't do it those that way you'll very be quickly be told that ask to consider your position <laughs> <laughs> or you'll consider your own position and you'll move on so you know we have to be really really careful about over over applying stuff in the military because one of one of the other aspects of this kind of command and control paradox, the paradox of control is that in order to have that clarity of direction and mission, I think it's actually necessary to give up control of immediate outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So in the leadership position, in order to become a distributed organization, that leader has to give up a lot of control and has to have trust in order to be able to do that in their subordinates. Mm -hmm. Because I think one mistake I often see is that leaders want absolute certainty about what's going on. And that's very, very uncomfortable to give up. Hmm. But in order to build a distributed system, you, you can't have concert certainty. What is it? Cap, cap theorem. I forget. And you know, it's one yeah. of those old. Um, yeah. I think the C stands for consistency. Consistency. Right? Yes. Availability consistency. and partition tolerance. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I mean, partition tolerance is what you need to very much be um, building for in an organization because you're async. You know, you're not online all the time. Yeah. You're not connected all the time. You're not available all the time. So yeah. So I think I think the biggest thing that I see, you know, businesses that seem to be doing really, really well is that leadership ability to give up control and accept uncertainty because that rigid demand for certainty means that actually you're over over the, the space of time you're losing control. Yeah, I can see it. I can definitely see it. So I'm wondering, do you have an example of a business that you worked with that you feel got all those three elements, people, process, ideas, technology, right? And what did that look like? Yes, to a, to, to a degree. I don't think I've ever worked somewhere, like I'm hoping to build a company that does this myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. But you know, I've, I've worked in places that have elements of it. So as an example, one of the early kind of places I tried this out was with a restaurant business. Obviously during the pandemic that we've just had, Restaurants had a bit of a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And this restaurant business that I worked with was already using chatbots and, you know, quite large network of, of automations for doing some of this stuff, which was working super well for, for the operational side of things. You know, people could get, they could feel connected because they were going through, you know, Facebook workplace. They had chatbots in there that could answer questions for them. And the, the problem was that there was that 
sort of lack of consistency of where that data sat and lack of situational awareness of what was going on. So you had, you know, general managers in that business would have to, you know, to find out how profitable they were, they would have to send an email to central office who would go and look at all the point of sale data and come back to them in two days, which, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're trying to make decisions on how many people to put in, how many staff to put on, you kind of need that. You need to have that without asking a human for it. So that's an example of humans filling cogs in machines, right? That answer in any business that has an operational element, the stuff that people need to know to get their job done needs to be right here, front and center, like on a screen in front of them, readily available. And so that's what I started using this stack to build. We centralized all the point of sale data. We built some views over that. We joined in all the HR data about, you know, who people are, how much they get paid. And then from that, you can build a view either as an aggregate at the business level or as an individual, you know, general manager of a restaurant to say, okay, how profitable was I at two o'clock on a Tuesday? And the answer in most places is pretty much not profitable because, you know, you've got one or two people walking through the door and you've got five staff on and you've got that minimum level. So you get this kind of sort of sense of the rhythm of the business through the data that flows through the business. Mm -hmm. And that worked super well at the operational level. It didn't work so well because, you know, there are other aspects of the business that I didn't get around to, to tackling like, you know, finance and the, the logistics supply chain and things like that. So I think had that engagement continued, mm. we might have got there. And that was a, you know, relatively multi 50 different locations, you know, different kind of socioeconomic places, um, conditions, you know, they were all around mm. the country, a restaurant in Canary Wharf versus a restaurant in, um, I don't know, West London, you know, very different kind of demographics. Yeah. And we would have got there eventually, I think. So that was, a, that was one example. Okay. So Mission Control, the company that you are just about to spin up, mm-hmm. how are you thinking of using all those three elements within Mission Control to basically show what something as close to the ideal would look like? So what is the combination of all three elements? How are you thinking about it? And how are you thinking, especially from the tooling side? Because again, technology, I think that is that is the enabler. People, I think it's just a few of you right now. Mm-hmm. And the ideas we've we've heard them. We had like you know fifty minutes, sixty minutes almost of like hearing all those ideas. So how do you imagine yourself combining all those into mission control? Yeah, that's a very good question. The typical engagement that I have in my mind is that you know we would. So all of this stuff is, you know, I've got to the point where I've picked the right or I've picked a decent set of tools, and I've got mm-hmm. something that I can spin up on you know low cost cloud infrastructure very quickly which is good because that means that, that the cost of that is minimal and we can spend the cost on doing the human things of you know uncovering where the business wants to get to, yeah. you know what the goals are, what the drivers are, what the constraints are, because you have to have that kind of big picture understanding first. Mm-hmm. So the rough kind of view is that we would spin up the cloud infrastructure, which would be all the bits that you need. That would be owned by the business that, that I go work with. It's not, you know, I, I'm a purely service-based offering here. I'm not making any margin on any of the tools or anything like that. It's a purely service-based thing to build a capability that that business owns and operates and it becomes part of part of mm-hmm. them. And then there's that kind of discovery process of, right, where does the business want to get to? What are the biggest kind of bottlenecks and constraints? How might we want to reconfigure parts of the business model and you know the operations in light of having this new capability? Because mm-hmm. the last thing 
the last thing you want to do when you, and this is the big problem with approaches like um, RPA, you don't just want to go in and blindly start automating the stuff that's there that might not necessarily want to be there, right? You're just accelerating chaos if you do that. If you've got a process that's not particularly well designed in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, you don't necessarily want to just blindly automate it because then, you know, if it's if it's really badly designed, you actually could be driving the business into the ground if that process mm-hmm. isn't profitable or whatever. So there has to be that kind of big picture first look. And then it's a case of, you know, building a targeting list and and biting off the parts that are causing the most pain. So if you go into a, an engineering business, it might be that oh wow, we've got, you know, all of these expensive engineering managers that are spending 20% of their time, you know, collating reports. Click, that's easy, we can sort that one out. Mm-hmm. We might have something where the breakdown of customers and orders and their behavior once they become customers is unclear because you've got the customer acquisition data held in one system and the operations mm-hmm. in another. And then what we might do is just centralize that and and build some dashboards over the top so that we can see different segments of customers and how they behave, which is not impossible to do in Excel, but it absolutely sucks. And it's really you know painful to keep that up to date. Whereas you know what we can do with these capabilities that I just mentioned is you can have a real-time feed from all of those operational systems into the single source of of sort of consistent data. Mm. Backward looking because you know we don't really care about it's not a transactional system. It's a business intelligence system. So it works in retrospect. And then you use Metabase or something similar. There's another great one called cube.dev, which is a um, headless BI system. But the general principle is that all of these different parts of the system where possible should be open source. They should run on cheap PaaS platforms that we mentioned so that the the overhead of them doesn't require a full-time engineer just to keep it up and running. And you can still use all of the engineers to build the product. But at any point, you know, the bus factor of me is zero because it's all built off commodity, open source software. So if you're an engineering company, you know, if the worst was to happen, then you would quite easily be able to manage and, and operate that system yourself. Right. Okay. So for mission control, the business, the website, what do you pick? Like, how do you run your stack? I'm curious. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great question. So, I mean, I've I've nerded out on this long enough. So, I have a content management system, open source, called Strappy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Strappy.io. That's where I keep all of my kind of the the structure of the website and blog posts and things like that. Mm-hmm. That is statically rendered into a Jamstack. Next.js site that is hosted on Vercel. Strappy runs on um, railway.app. Vercel is where I run my kind of front end system. So that's a, you know, statically compiled, very fast to load, optimized HTML build. Mm-hmm. Vercel also gives you serverless functions on the back end, just you, you know, Next.js thing. It's you, you write functions yeah. in a certain way in a certain directory in your code and you've got a, an API endpoint. Another massive part of this stack is um, Hasura. Mm-hmm. So, very important part of this stack is where you keep all of that consolidated data. And Hasura is fantastic because underneath it is a proper Postgres database. So you've got you know all of the affordances that Postgres gives you to make sure that your data is well formed and you know foreign keys are pointing in the right direction and and mm-hmm. all of that. And then Hasura gives you a free API over the top of that in the form of a GraphQL schema that's automatically generated. So that just cuts down all of the backend programming that you have to do because you know, you want to build a specific user interface, you can pick a retool or AppSmith, or you can build something yourself in, in Next.js 
And the amount of backend programming you have to do is very minimal because it's just, you know, you just do a GraphQL query. In fact, mm. you can even uh, generate code, typed code, if you're using TypeScript, which obviously on my, my back, I might not have mentioned this before, my background is in functional programming and I like mm. types a lot. <laughs> so yeah, you can, you can build this quite robust, but very, very easy to operate system comprised of all these different parts and NAN, um, NAN you can run as a cloud service, so you can pay NAN themselves to, to run you that. But if it ever gets, you know, if you ever find that you're putting a load of volume through and it's costing you too much, you can always run it yourself again on the same platform. Whereas I sometimes see, you know, things like Zapier or Integromat, you know, as soon as you're in there, in that system, as soon as something gets expensive, you now have a very expensive rebuild job to do. Either you suck it up and you pay several hundred pounds a month mm-hmm. or, or more sometimes, which is, you know, probably worth doing versus the alternative. But yeah. that's, you know, money that's straight off your your bottom line. Or you stop the world and you rebuild it into something that runs on, you know, a some sort of cloud infrastructure. And that's obviously expensive in engineering time. Or you do it this other way and you say, okay, I can run it myself on my own infrastructure and you'll just pay mm. usage on railway or or whatever, just a Docker container. You gave me a lot of tools that I'll be checking out. I'll be dropping all of those in the show notes. Some of them I've never heard before. So this is super exciting uh, for me. I really like the the people aspect, which you brought up. I thought that was that was like a very, very important element. And it's just easy, so easy to get engrossed in all the tooling and like basically yeah. start nerding out and you forget, well, hang on, there's humans and it's not just you that have to understand this, humans that you work with. And if they think that is the wrong choice, then you know what? It doesn't really matter whether you like it or not. It doesn't yeah. really matter how amazing you think Kubernetes is. For Jared, it's really hard. And this is like a personal example. And, you know, a pass, um, as, you know, some of the pass, like you're going backwards. Well, no, not really, because these are like, there's like a new breed of passes out there that have new capabilities. And while it may look like a pass, actually, it's a very different beast these days. There's, there's possibly one more, but I'm wondering, like key takeaway for me, but I'm wondering as we prepare to wrap this up, what would you say is the key takeaway for our listeners that stuck with us to the end? So, I mean, the key takeaway and the reason that I'm, you know, doing doing what I'm doing here is that actually it's a key takeaway from 2000 years ago. So it's a Greek philosopher. They often come up with some pithy, uh, pithy one-liners is um, you don't rise to the level of your expectations, you fall to the level of your training. Right. And so in the modern world, building technology-based businesses you know, you don't rise to the level of eight or your expectations, you fall to the level of your systems. Mm. So increasingly, the systems that we build, you know, is the gating factor in how well we do. Because if you want to be competitive in today's world, you have to have the systems to do that, right? If you were to, I don't know, run any business, there's a business that's still in my village that doesn't even have a, a card machine, you still pay cash. Does the thing even exist? I don't remember the last time I used cash. That's why I asked. Like everything is online these days. Like exactly. when do you use cash? Like seriously. Exactly. So, okay. so you know, so these guys now on holiday <laughs> are incredibly vulnerable to, you know, the next chain restaurant or whatever that rocks up that can deliver their services cheaper, that can actually access delivery services. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the level of systems that you have, the level of systemization, sensible systemization you put into your business is increasingly the gating factor and those systems could be social systems i.e mm. in the military we have 
very specific ways of communicating, that's a social system. It can be the socio-technical system, which is the mix of people and technology, or it can just be the pure kind of automation and efficiency play that you get from that. And there's this whole spectrum and you, you need to pay attention to that. You can no mm-hmm. longer succeed where your competitors are paying attention to this. It's the serious competitive advantage, I think, nowadays. So what I'm hearing is if you're using Excel, <laughs> that is your limit. <laughs> if everything boils down to Excel or it boils down to just email reports being thrown around, that is the level that you will be at. And it doesn't yep. really matter what you use on the front end if what runs the business are those, I don't want to call them outdated, but less modern system. It's, yeah, I mean, there's there's better alternatives. So if you're, you know, if you're using Excel and email, you are like an athlete with the flu, right? You are not going to win. You know, even if you would normally win, even if you've got impeccable training, you know, you know, if your muscles and your sinews are the equivalent of people in a business and they're really, really fantastic and you've trained them to death, no, that's a, that's a poor example. <laughs> if you've trained them very well, not today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you've trained yourself extremely well, but you have flu or, you know, you have vertigo or something, yeah, you're not going to perform. And it's exactly the same with businesses. You know, you have to have, you have to take the best of what's available out there. And you're right yeah. that Excel is definitely, the, I mean, the problem with Excel is easy to use, right? So people start using it for databases and for... Yeah operations and for managing projects and it's not the best tool it's not even in the top five of best tools for any of those things mm-hmm. so yeah i think i mean even for modeling we've we've got better options like uh, causal.app which i shared with you the other day mm-hmm. so for me like i could just i could just probably return my business excel extermination as a service and it wouldn't be inaccurate i think it'll be very catchy <laughs> i think many people would recognize oh excel i know this oh no 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 hang on this does the opposite to excel of what they want <laughs> yeah he wants to exterminate excel yeah the excel exterminator okay so i'm going to defer the title of this episode to you because you're very crafty <laughs> with them <laughs> so that's that's the first thing the last thing is i know that riding motorbikes has a very important element to you. Uh, I know that uh, the talk that we mentioned, uh, The Paradox of Control, starts with that story, which is a great mm-hmm. one. You mentioned about you starting to write on a track, and I'm wondering, how is that going? Which track do you use, and how is that going? So I don't actually have a motorbike anymore. I got to the end of the, the finance period on the motorbike that I had, and I just had like too much work on, so I didn't roll over, but I will be getting another one at some point. Just check mm-hmm. my wife isn't in any shop. <laughs> but, so this is the other thing that, Building capability, like I ride with with friends who have been riding for a long time, and because they've gone through this kind of muscle memory of, you know, they push it hard, some of them, like really, really hard. Mm. They crash all the time. You know, they really push it a lot harder than I do. But they also have experience. They have time under tension. And so the thing that I'm doing, riding at the speed that they are completely at ease, that they're not even slightly taxed, and I'm at max capacity Mm. trying Mm. to stay on the bloody machine, you know? So I think there's a really important lesson there is that, you know, building systems in in a business context is very much like building skill in a performance context in an, as an individual, right? So you have these guys that are just pootling along at the same speed as I am, but, you know, able to literally put one hand on the handlebars and look over the shoulder to check my body position. Wow. And I'm like, you know, hanging off the bike. I'm not, you know, not probably not at 100% because that's not how you build skill, but, you know, the the difference there, and, you know, there's, there's other examples in the martial arts. So, what riding a bike taught me was that 
you know your your performance is predicated on on your previous practice not what you think you're going to be able to do and it's the same with systems in business oh yes oh yes i can see a, a strong correlation there that's why i brought it up okay well ben thank you very much for joining me again definitely doing this next year like or in a year's time maybe even sooner but definitely next year because i'm really enjoying these conversations thank you very much for joining yeah, me yeah definitely and we said last time that after afterwards that we have to get together for a for a barbecue over summer so we definitely need to make that happen this summer oh yes oh yes that's another one thank you very much for that thank you ben absolutely all right great stuff thank you for tuning into another episode of shipping check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master you can connect with like-minded developers from all over the world via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome, Breakmaster Cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. My last thought for today is your ship it feedback. If you enjoy the show, rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. You can be the first listener that leaves us feedback on Apple Podcasts. I'm looking forward to it.